I'm going to introduce uh, Jamal Crawford. He's uh, the senior pastor at the New Life Center here in Des Moines. And uh, he's going to be sharing with us. Uh, also, I think we've communicated, we've been looking at CRT issues yep. and the Bible and, and everything. And uh, I think Bob sent you the video that yes. we went yes. through and everything else. So you're familiar with that. And uh, so we just kind of wanted to see, all right, if we're rejecting CRT, where should we be going for relations and, and uh, you know, unifying the body of believers? So. Yes. So I'm going to turn it over to you. and uh, Thank you so much. Thank you share with us so thank you all right well thank you for the invite i'm going to steal this here and uh and go back over here <laughs> well good evening good evening uh, the plan is just to uh want to introduce myself and uh kind of what my topic would be i have a video which is like 18 minutes and then uh have some conversation got some um content based off the video then open up for questions and uh so uh, I, I'm, I'm just trusting that God will um, man, just create an opportunity here where we learn and grow. And uh, what I'm going to begin with is that we've all been created in his image. And, uh, and every person, young or old, doesn't matter the ethnicity group, deserves to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so my approach is always racial reconciliation. And so that's my approach. And we, I know I looked at the video a little bit, Christianity versus um, the uh, critical race theory, all those things. I know there's a lot that comes out of that, but I want to come from a biblical standpoint, seeking reconciliation. And uh, here's, the, here's, here's the big deal. You know, we've been reconciled back to God because it's what Jesus did on the cross. Mm -hmm. And so we already have that example. And so we are to model that very thing as the body of Christ um, to really uh, make every effort to uh, model reconciliation and to reconcile. And reconcile means to, uh, to put back, to bring back. And I know because of sin, it, it's broken relationships and all the things that's happened in our nation and around the world. But you know what? Because of Christ and what he did on the cross, you know, we can model reconciliation. So I'm coming from that perspective. All right. And um, um, and uh, again, my name is Jamel Crawford. I pastor New Life Center. Uh, it's in the Drake Park area. Um, we also uh, started the Des Moines Dream Center three years ago. And uh, the part of the Dream Center is to help bring hope and uh, help people dream again. And so we got a lot of kids programs that we do through that. Uh, we have community outreach and then we're working hard on foster care support. Uh, really support the system here in Iowa. And, um, and uh, so... Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be here today, and uh, thank you, Bob, for the invite, and, um, and uh, as well as Doug. I'm going back and forth on email, and I thank you for the invite. Can I open a word of prayer? Is that all right? Yes. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to grow in you. We thank you for the body of Christ. And I just pray today, in this moment, Lord, that you encourage us and help us to continue to be a reflection of you. Uh, be a reflection of you, not only in our personal lives, but be a reflection of you um, when we out the four walls of our church or even in our home. And those that we come in contact with, that we are a reflection of you. And so we ask that you would bless our time tonight, Lord God, as we look at uh, racial reconciliation, the importance of that, the opportunity we have to model that uh, to those around us. So we thank you for this time tonight and what you're going to do. We give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. And... Uh, and so what brings me to this whole, uh, to the point of racial reconciliation? Uh, I remember the whole George Floyd thing. I'm not rehashing any of the events, anything like that. 
I just want to share what I went through at that very moment. Um, um, when I heard the news of what happened and saw the news, things like that, for the very first time in a long time, there was a motion that kind of rose up. I've always turned to like, you know, trust God in every situation, model. But in this instance, it kind of rose up me and I was like, oh, Lord, I don't know what this feeling is coming from. So my, what was my first move? My first move was to pray. That was my first move. That was my first reaction. And I even encourage you when you are feeling overwhelmed, something comes up, emotions that get high or something you don't like or don't agree with, pray. So that was my first move. I pray. It's like, Lord, I don't know what this feeling is. Help me to process this. Literally the next day, I'm in my office and I was doing some work. I got a phone call. I'm from another pastor in town. And he asked a simple question. How are you doing? It was a Caucasian pastor from another church. How are you doing? Had no idea what I prayed or what I was feeling the night before. That set in motion a relationship that is even that's strong today. A relationship that him and I got to lunch and we connect and uh, we went from there to uh, to pray for the situation. We did a live Facebook prayer together on stage and we didn't put it on Facebook. We did that together. It went from there to, uh, I don't anybody remember this or heard of this, but last October, uh, it was kind of warm too, thank God. Um, we did a big racial reconciliation worship event at the Capitol. And I had a, we had a big worship band out there. The band was made up of all different backgrounds. Uh, the crowd was like over, it was about a thousand people, different ethnic backgrounds, just worshiping Jesus. Because that's what heaven's going to be like. So we might as well practice it here. Why wait till we get to heaven? And so that's what, so that was, so we did that immediately. It was the greatest response. Then from there, I got to connect with some other pastors. And uh, there was a pastor from another um, church, different denominations, by the way. We did, a, we did a pulpit swap. He preached at my church on a Sunday while I preached at his. But that all came out of just that one question, how are you doing? Um, just, a, just a, hey, uh, I know this is happening in your community. How are you taking it? You know, and I was able to share, hey, this is where I'm at, and let's pray. And, uh, and, and out of that, um, there's a desire for reconciliation. And uh, uh, Tony Evans is another pastor that's huge on racial reconciliation, all those things. I began to read his books and his articles, things like that, to get a better perspective on how to respond. Because the response is not going to be easy. Because I'll be honest with you, in the midst of the response, when I talked about racial reconciliation, I want you to know today that I got flack, not only from the church, but I did from the black community as well. So I received flack from that as well. Um, because the response, you ought to respond this way. You got to be mad, got to be angry. You know, I got a savior. I prayed and he gave, he gave me the, um, the know-how to respond and to how to respond to things that are negative. Hey, yo, hey, hey, when I gave my life to Jesus, man, he had a plan for my, he has a plan for our life. And, uh, and each day it's my desire to be more like him. And the more I like him, like him, becoming like him, I respond differently to any issue that arises, including racial tensions. And I know that in our, in our, in our, uh, communities, um, uh, you look at you look on TV and Facebook, all those things. I mean, man, they they going in. I mean, they, when I mean going in, they really negative and really uh, push back against Christianity. How I respond in it, and and we are responding. We're not responding well. Can I be honest? We're not responding well. We're responding with anger. 
We're responding instead of we ought to respond. And my hope is today that we respond. Hey, racial reconciliation. I can't even talk. And to pursue him in the midst of that. Is that fair? And that's what I'm coming from. Come from that perspective that, you know what? Uh, that's you and I. We are the body of Christ. Yes, I, go, I, I pass a church on the other side of town, but we still the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. And, uh, and, uh, and God has asked, he tasked us. Our mission is to go make disciples. You know, and so we got to do that together. And the work that I do um, in the inner city area, I cannot do it without the body of Christ. I'm able to do what I do because there are churches from all over that partner with us to help us to continue to share hope to the broken. You know, regardless of the age, regardless of the ethnic backgrounds, we get to share Christ. You know what? I, and, and what we're experiencing right now is real. All right. It's real. But you know what? How do we respond to that? How do we model Christ in the midst of it? So I'm coming from that perspective and we can ask questions. I ask some questions afterwards and uh, we'll go from there. Cool. Thumbs up. Yeah, I'm right, throw me out. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. All right. Hey, I was be open and honest. I'm good. I, hey, you know, I, I will not get offended by any questions or conversations, anything like that, because I know who I am in Christ. I know I'm good, and uh, so I want to know that. And so, and uh, and so, uh, I'll come from the perspective. But I do want to show a video. Let's go, let's go to Holy Post. I don't know if anybody's seen this video. Uh, it talks about race in America um, and uh, just kind of give you perspective um, um, uh, how race is in America and things like that. And uh, and then our response, what that response would be. All right. And so I'm going to show this and we will go from there. Any questions before I go into any questions about me, our church and perspective? Anything like that? You good? <laughs> we need to talk about race. Why are people protesting? Why are people angry? Slavery ended 150 years ago. The civil rights movement was 60 years ago. Racial discrimination is illegal now. Heck, we even had a black president. So why are people still upset? We're gonna go through history and we're gonna look at some data and we're gonna go quickly so this video doesn't get too long. So, hang on. These are two households in America. One is black, the other is white. Today, the average black household has 60% of the income of the average white household, but only one-tenth of the household wealth. Why does that matter? Well, household wealth helps send kids to school, helps launch small businesses, stabilizes loss of income, and helps families survive catastrophic events like divorce or unemployment. What's amazing about this number is that there are lots of extremely wealthy African Americans, movie stars, pop stars, 75% of the NBA, 70% of the NFL, Oprah, Tyler Perry, Ben Carson, Morgan Freeman, and there are a lot of extremely poor white families. Think of Appalachia and other parts of rural America. But even when we factor all that in, the average black household still has only one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. How did that happen? Well, here we go. What happened after we freed the slaves, after the Civil War ended? Nine states enacted vagrancy laws, making it a crime to not have a job. 
the law was applied only to black men. Eight of those states then allowed prisoners, the black men who'd just been arrested for not having a job, to be hired out to plantation owners with little or no pay going to the prisoners themselves. So, that's right, men who had been freed from the plantations found themselves right back on the plantations. Additional laws prohibited mischief and insulting gestures, which allowed more black men to be arrested and created a huge market for convict leasing. Working conditions for these leased convicts could be worse than slavery because the plantation owner leasing the black prisoner had no long-term interest in his well-being. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had mandated racial segregation by law, Jim Crow laws which supported a social ostracism for blacks that extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels and restaurants, hospitals, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. White politicians competed with each other to be more strict and specific on segregation. For example, a law prohibiting blacks and whites from playing chess together. No interracial chess playing. That might lead to lawn darts. In 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that these Jim Crow laws were perfectly legal because they, quote, reflected customs and traditions and, quote, preserved public peace and good order. These laws stayed in place until 1954, when the idea of separate but equal was struck down in the ruling known as Brown versus Board of Education. So what happened next after Brown? Well, in 1956, the Southern Manifesto was signed by 101 out of 128 Congress members from the South, pledging to maintain Jim Crow by all means possible. Five states passed nearly 50 new Jim Crow laws after 1954. Private whites-only schools dubbed segregation academies popped up all across the South, many of them Christian. But now widespread civil rights protests, combined with anti-war protests that were occasionally becoming violent, inspired the political rise of law and order rhetoric. Richard Nixon became the first candidate to campaign specifically on a platform of law and order. In 1968, 81% of Americans agreed that law and order had broken down in this country, and the majority blamed communists and Negroes who start riots. Let's go back to household wealth. The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. Why is that? Because the number one source of intergenerational wealth in America is home ownership. And from the 1930s to well into the 1960s, the federal government enacted policies to actively encourage white families to own homes and discourage black families from doing the same. In 1934, the Federal Housing Administration created a risk rating system to determine which neighborhoods were safe investment for federally backed mortgages. Black neighborhoods were deemed too risky, marked off in maps with red ink, in a practice now known as redlining. After World War II, a boom of new suburban housing was built all over the country, much of it restricted by deed to whites only. In 1948, 40% of new housing developments in Minneapolis, for example, had covenants prohibiting purchase by African Americans. So blacks couldn't live in white neighborhoods and couldn't get federally insured loans for black neighborhoods. Until 1950, the Realtor's Code of Ethics specifically prohibited selling a house in a white neighborhood to a non-white family. You could lose your Realtor's license if you helped a black family buy a home in a white neighborhood. In the 19th 
1930s, the FHA's underwriting manual said, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. The FHA went on to recommend that highways would be a great way to separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. The FHA funded huge white-only suburban housing developments, leaving blacks behind in inner cities. After World War II, the GI Bill provided subsidized mortgages to help millions of men returning from war to buy their first home. While technically eligible for the GI Bill, the way it was administered left one million black veterans largely on the outside looking in. In New York and New Jersey, the GI Bill insured more than 67,000 new mortgages. Fewer than 100 of those went for homes purchased by non-whites. In 1947, there were 3,200 mortgages in Mississippi guaranteed by the government for returning veterans. Of the 3,200, only two went to black veterans. As a result, white families after the war were able to build home equity, growing wealth for retirement, inheritance, and college education for their kids. One historian has stated that there was no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. And then came the war on drugs. Inner-city blacks were extremely vulnerable economically. The overwhelming majority of African Americans in 1970 lacked college degrees and had grown up in fully segregated schools. In the second half of the 20th century, factories and manufacturing jobs moved to the suburbs. Black workers struggled to follow the jobs. They couldn't live in many of the new suburban developments. And as late as 1970, only 28% of black fathers had access to a car. When a white man in Cicero, Illinois, just outside Chicago, sublet an apartment to a black family, the white community rioted, setting fire to the apartment building and smashing windows until the National Guard had to intervene. The result of all of this. In 1970, 70% of African American men had good blue-collar jobs. By 1987, only 28% did. As unemployment skyrocketed in African-American communities, so did drug use. As drug use increased, so did crime. A dynamic today that we see playing out in white rural communities hit hard by unemployment and opioid addiction. Throughout the 1970s, white America became increasingly concerned by images of black violence shown on TV and in magazines. Drugs were the problem. Drug dealers and drug users were the enemy. So we decided to treat the drug epidemic not as a health crisis, but as a crisis of criminality. And we militarized our response. During the Reagan-Bush years from 1981 to 1991, how we invested money in anti-drug allocation completely changed. The anti-drug budget for the Department of Defense went from $33 million in 1981 to more than $1 billion in 1991. The Drug Enforcement Agency's budget to fight criminality and drug use went from $86 million to more than $1 billion. Then we came to the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which carried mandatory minimum sentences, much harsher for the distribution of crack cocaine, which was associated with blacks, than powder cocaine, which was associated with whites. Mandated evictions from public housing for any tenant who permitted drug-related criminal activity to occur on or near premises. It eliminated many government benefits, including student loans, for anyone convicted of a drug crime. The 1988 revision set a five-year minimum sentence for possessing any amount of crack 
crack cocaine, even if there was no intent to distribute. Previously, it had been a one-year maximum sentence for possessing any amount of any drug without the intent to distribute. Now, it might seem like we're picking on Republicans, so now it's time to pick on some Democrats. During the Clinton presidency, the funding for public housing was cut by $17 billion. At the same time, the funding for prisons increased by $19 billion. The number of Americans imprisoned for drug crimes exploded. In 1980, there were 41,000 Americans imprisoned for drug crimes. Today, there are more than a half million, more than the entire 1980 prison population. Most arrests are for possession. In 2005, 80% of the arrests were for possessing drugs, not selling drugs. In a bizarre twist, we also militarized our police forces. Between 1997 and 1999, the Pentagon handled 3.4 million orders for military equipment from more than 11,000 police agencies, including 253 aircraft, including Black Hawk and Huey helicopters, 7,800 M16 rifles, 181 grenade launchers, grenade launchers for the police, 8,000 bulletproof helmets, 1,200 night vision goggles. We also changed policing tactics. A no-knock entry is when a SWAT team literally breaks down your door or smashes in through the windows, like in E.T. when the cops come flying in from every direction looking for E.T. So back to Minneapolis. In 1986, Minneapolis SWAT teams performed no-knock entries 35 times. Ten years later, in 1996, they performed no-knock entries 700 times. That's two every day. There were financial incentives for arresting more drug users. Federal grants to local police departments were tied to the number of drug arrests. Research suggests the huge surge in arrests from increased drug enforcement was due more to budget incentives than to actual increases in drug use. So what was the result? An explosion of our prison population. In 25 years, the U.S. prison population went from 350,000 to over 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We imprison a higher percentage of our black population than South Africa ever did during apartheid. Data shows that the increased prison population was driven primarily by changes in sentencing policy. There was no visible connection between higher incarceration rates and higher violent crime rates. If you are a drug felon, you are barred from public housing. You are ineligible for food stamps. You're forced to check the box on employment applications marking yourself as a convicted felon. A criminal record has been shown to reduce the likelihood of getting a callback or job offer by as much as 50%. The negative impact of a criminal record for an African-American job applicant is twice as large as for a white applicant. In 2006, one in 106 white men was behind bars. For black men, it was one in 14. For black men between the age of 20 and 35, the age where families are built, it's one in nine. Overall, African Americans and white Americans use drugs at roughly the same rate, but the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of whites. It may be true that there isn't explicit racism in our legal system anymore, but it doesn't mean justice is blind. 
A study, a law in Georgia permitted prosecutors to seek life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Over the period of the study, this law was used against 1% of white second-time offenders and 16% of black second-time offenders. As a result, 98% of prisoners serving life sentences under this law were black. Study, African-American youth in the U.S. make up 16% of all youth but 28% of all juvenile arrests, 35% of youth sent to adult court instead of juvenile court, and 58% of youth admitted to adult state prison. Study, blacks on the New Jersey Turnpike make up 15% of all drivers, but 42% of all stops by police and 73% of all arrests. Among all drivers stopped, white drivers were two times more likely than black drivers to be carrying drugs. Study, Volusia County, Florida, 5% of drivers were black or Latino, but 80% of drivers stopped were black or Latino. Study, Oakland, California. Black drivers are twice as likely as white drivers to be stopped and three times more likely to be searched. In Minneapolis, Philando Castile had been pulled over 49 times in 13 years, mostly for minor infractions. The 49th time he was pulled over, he was shot by the officer while sitting inside his car. He'd been pulled over for a broken taillight. Chuck Colson's organization, Prison Fellowship, recently organized a manifesto that was signed by evangelical leaders asserting that our over-reliance on incarceration fails to make us safer or restore the people and communities who have been harmed. Unconscious bias seeps into schools, too, as white teachers often assume black students are less intelligent than they actually are. A gifted student usually has to be recommended by a teacher to move to a gifted track. When a teacher is black, an equally gifted white and black student have comparable chances of being recommended. When the teacher is white, the black student's odds of being recommended are cut in half. Are white teachers racist? No. Are they affected by bias? Yes. And it affects black students every day. So where are we? The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. This didn't happen by accident. It happened by policy. We, the majority culture, told them where they could live and where they couldn't. Then we moved most of the jobs to the places we told them they couldn't live. When the predictable explosion of unemployment and poverty resulted in a predictable increase in drug use and crime, we criminalized the problem. We built $19 billion of new jails and sold grenade launchers to the police. As a result, a white boy born in America today has a 1 in 23 chance of going to prison in his lifetime. For a black boy, it's 1 in 4. And that is why people are angry. Many people care deeply about these issues. Many have suggested solutions. Some of those have been tested, with results ranging from moderate success to abject failure. I'm not here to tell you what the right solutions are, because I don't know. I'm just here to ask you to do one thing. It is the thing that begins every journey to a solution for every problem. What am I asking you to do? Care. And uh, I just showed that just, uh, um, people just don't know. I mean, I didn't know some of the information, to be honest with you. And uh, 
and uh, and where probably some of the stuff that you hear today that you where does stuff come from? Why there's such a big deal today? And here's some of the information that plays into all the big stuff that we we don't always get the information. Uh, we just get the end result, and everybody mad and ready to you know throw believers under the bus and you know and lock us up and things like that. But um, my hope was to sort of to see where um, so that where it came from, where to start from, why people are angry, why African Americans are angry, and so forth. And uh, that does not give excuse not to do our part. And uh, and uh, but at least give us a test. So so what do we do with this information? Care. So what I would say care, so what I did was I broke down care to four things. See, colorblind. Uh, all of a sudden, that's a colorblind. I meant to say color. I meant to say color brave. You know, will you be brave enough? Because as followers of Christ of different um, ethnicities, we share a common heritage, a common memory. Consider these words Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3:26 and 20. He says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that forces us, help us um, to be color brave, all right? And uh, what I mean, what do I mean by that? That man, that color brave means that, man, I'm willing to see a brother or sister of a different ethnicity and uh, be proud and have the courage to um, and recognize my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and we need to go, we need to look at from that lens in the first place because we have been created in his image. So therefore, we ought to be responding or modeling um, uh, color brave. I ain't said color blind. I said color brave is appreciating other ethnicities and appreciating other people um, because we understand that we've been created in his image. And therefore, we are, you know, we honor, we respect or uh, so forth. One of the things for our church is one of our core values is to be multicultural. And so that's one of our core values. And so um, because we are intentional and in put it in our DNA, so my staff reflects it. Every time we do worship, outreach, it all reflects that. We know that when we go into community, that we're going to um, reach uh, people of all different backgrounds, ages, colors, and so forth. And so we are intentional even in our DNA. And so and there was one church that asked me, you know, and they, they I said, man, I want to uh, be able to reach community and, and go out and uh, uh, reach different ethnic groups of support. And the first question I ask, is it in your DNA? Is that part of your DNA? You couldn't answer that question. What I mean by that, um, having a, a, a Latino pastor on your staff doesn't necessarily meet the quota. But that's the first thing we think. Oh, if I just add a staff person, you know, or, or uh, uh, a leader that's of a different race, I met that. No, it got to be a part of your DNA, a part of who you are. And so that's why we actually put it in our, um, when we do our strategic planning, hey, one of our core value is this. And so when we are making goals and when we're doing things, it reflects our DNA, reflects the core values that, man, we respect and we honor all people. So we honor all folks in our church, um, uh, every opportunity we get. And so that's part of being color brave, that we understand and acknowledge that we all been created in his image and then that we would be intentional in making a part of our DNA. And, and the love um, and the family that we must be color brave, color caring, color honoring and not color blind. You know, so he's like, man, I don't see no color. That, that's our first. I don't see color. 
No, our response is color honoring, color brave. Um, that because it would because the difference color blind and color brave is that brave forces you to honor, forces you to care, forces you to um, go out of your comfort zone, um, which you're used to for the sake of uh, because some of the information that a statistic, these are true statistics. And this is what the black community is dealing with on a regular basis. Um, there are biases. There are things that are happening. And so uh, this opportunity for the church to set example and to model what it looks like um, to uh, pursue reconciliation, to honor and to care. So that hey, the reason why is because we've been created in his image. That goes back to Genesis 127. We've all been created in his image. So that C is color brave, A, awareness. And what I say is to listen, to learn. Listen, to learn. And what that pastor did on that day, he called to listen. He wanted to learn what I was thinking. What was up? How was your response? How do you feel about it? You know, and so he would so hear what it says in James 1, 20. It says, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to to listen or hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry, you know, and uh, and it says because human anger does not produce the righteousness of God desires. Hey, you know, I, you know and, 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 and to be honest, I could have been I should have been really, really angry. But you know what? Because I because I prayed first, I said, Lord, I need to help me in this moment because I got feelings that I just have not felt in a long time. To help me to process. And by doing that, he sent somebody a phone call. How you doing? What's up? They was willing to listen and to learn. You know, and all the relationships that I have right now with different pastors in the city, you know, um, and, and, um, and even, not even in pastors, other individuals. One thing we have is that we've been able to connect, to partner, because we have an understanding that we all been creating his image. If he hurts me, I'm going to listen. Hey, what's up? If I hurt... They do the same thing, but awareness, be willing to listen, not to speak, but to listen, to learn. That's the big thing, to listen, to learn, not just to hear what you want to hear, but to learn. You know, I believe that um, real beauty can come from the ashes of our country's history of racism and uh, the racism and all the things. I believe that there's something beautiful that can come out of it. Whatever Satan meant for evil, he could turn to something good. But it's going to take the body of Christ to um, really model that, though, in order to see beautiful out of the racism and all the things um, that we deal, out, deal with in our nation. The family of God must acknowledge the ashes. You know, we got to acknowledge the damage. We got to. That's why I showed the video. So we can acknowledge that this happened. We got to acknowledge the issues. We got to acknowledge the ashes so that they can be turned into something beautiful. Does that make sense? We got to acknowledge that it exists. What we do sometimes is that man, it don't exist. So, you know, oh, I don't want to deal with it. And so we leave it for somebody else to deal with. No, we got to deal with it as the family of God. We recognize it's the issue is there and then we model it. And that's where reconciliation comes into, into play uh, to, to me. And I'm not, I'm not speaking for everybody. For me, it's uh, reconciliation, which is a big piece of that. You know, truth frees us to grow, frees us to see, frees us to be aware, frees uh, from the bondage of race. And hey, because of sin, obviously we have everything. You have racism, you have uh, murder, all these different things because of sin. And so 
You know, it's, it's, these are difficult conversations, which I applaud your church for even um, diving into this and, uh, and how to uh, respond to it, how to move forward. So I applaud you for that. You know, and um, so that's A. So C is color brave. A, awareness. R, for the word care, is um, I have repentance. And, uh, and is this acknowledgement of the truth of a country's history with racism leads us toward repentance? Uh, it means to mourn or to deeply grieve. And um, grieving deeply for something horrific that has taken place creates a pathway for healing and hope. Amen? Amen. Hey, think about where what life once was and uh, he came and rescued us. We were heading for destruction, but Jesus came in. And because, because of him, now we have hope and we have a future. So understanding that, man, repentance comes from, you know, it's a full term. Our nation uh, history has um, racism tied into it and so forth. You know what? Let's recognize it. Lord, uh, help us to move forward. Forgive us, Lord. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Lord, forgive us. Help us to know how to move forward and um, so that we can see healing and hope in our nation. Amen. Amen. Hope and healing in our state. Hope and healing right here in our neighborhoods. Hey, why not um, Urban? Why not Des Moines be an example and model what it looks like when um, there is no hope through racism and hurt and bigotry that's happening, and that is turned because there was a body of Christ in Urban or Des Moines that would have said yes to God and said, we recognize the issue, but you know what? We're going to do something about it. We're going to model reconciliation. We're going to model God's love to everyone come in contact with, because that's what's going to, um, I ain't going to say end it, but man, it's going to do some damage. But we got to set that tone. And it's not the way for the African-American community to do so, man. No, all of us got to do it. You know, we ought to care for the, the Latino community, the African-American community. Uh, now, you know, and, and Des Moines now, the immigrant uh, population is growing. And so are we going to share hope to the group that comes? Yes, that's, we're going to model that for that group. But it's been a place. But, you know, but, it, but the only way to happen, though, is repentance. You know, um, after David's aftermath of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then having um, her husband murdered, David mourned over the sin and loss of his child. He wrote in Psalms 51, 1, 2, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. And uh, you know what? And, and that's what I pray for my life. Like, Lord, man, search my heart, oh God. Search my, is there any biases or there's any hate or anything in my heart? Lord, I pray you will forgive me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit in me. You ask me, you ask me, what do I do? How do I respond? Man, one of the ways, I, I, I responded by praying. And so that's what I'm going to pray. Hey, Lord, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit each and every day. So when I go out, there's no biases. I, when I go out, I'm loving. When I go out, I'm, I'm, I'm being intentional and uh, being color um, caring and honoring. And, uh, and so, man, it's just, it's fulfilling when you do so. It's fulfilling. And um, so we are to be agents of reconciliation. It's never too late for us to acknowledge, to grieve over racial injustices and to repent. It's okay to acknowledge it, and uh, man, there are some injustices. Man, we're going to recognize it, ask for repentance so that we can grow. So we ought to model that. 
Don't wait for don't wait for the governor to do it. Don't wait for the state representative to do it. Don't wait for your pastor to do it. You ought to model that. We are the church. Man, what an opportunity. I say that's an opportunity to bring healing and reconciliation um, onto our city and our country. Here's E, everyone. Everybody say everyone. everyone. Reconciliation is about relationships. It's about relationships. Because of that phone call from the pastor, man, we doing events together. I'm doing pulpit swaps. <laughs> That's unheard of. Seriously. Cause, you know, I, you know, it'd be hard to let some other pastor in your book. No, because of a relationship, we can do that. Man, we got a group of pastors that um, help Des Moines. Man, we get together, man, and, and we and there's a need in schools, if a need for hunger. We all working together. I mean, in the, in the Hope Des Moines group, man, we got Latinos, African-Americans, white, we got all types of folks in there. What heaven's supposed to look like? We practice it here on earth, man, having a good time doing it, too. You know, I get an invite because of relationship. You know, we're with Freedom for Youth and connecting. And, uh, and uh, because, you know, and because we are, I, I get an invite to come and be with you guys. That's out of a relationship. And I am grateful for that. But you know, everyone, it being attention, been on relationship. To reconcile basically means to restore to friendship. Let's be attentional in being in relationship with everyone, regardless of race, regardless of background. I love that we got young and old in the room, and hey, let's build a relationship. Let's be intentional in building a relationship because that is critical. Um, relationship is about everyone. Uh, once you repent from the sin of racism, develop relationships across racial lines. Pursue unity. You know, it's kind of hard to pursue unity outside of a race when they have unity within the church. Did I say that loud? Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Man, but you know what? If we can, hey, just imagine um, pursuing unity across racial lines, what that would do for the church. For all churches, not just, you know, Creekside Church specifically. I'm talking about as a whole. Yeah. The body of Christ, what that would, what that would do. That would be phenomenal. And uh, it says, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. This is 1 John 4.20. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Ooh, that was deep. <laughs> Almost hurt. <laughs> But I'll stop there and with that. That's the, uh, I, I just want us to pursue reconciliation by using the word care. To be color brave, not color blind, but I don't see color. No, I'm gonna honor, I'm going to respect, I'm going to care. A, aware, I'm gonna listen to learn. Somebody call me and listen to learn. Now we got a great relationship and everyone um, be intentional going across the lines um, to you know be in relationship with people as young old and then you can go to different racial lines that we would be intentional in doing that and let us model that um, like I said you know, Jesus um, uh, because of what he did on the cross for us we are reconciled back to God the Father because we were separated because of sin 
And now, because of what Jesus on the cross, we're in right relationship with, um, with God the Father. So you know what? So Jesus gave the great example. We have the example right here for us to do as to continue to reconcile, bear, um, uh, so that, uh, so there's unity. Um, now, I'm going to be quiet for a second and ask, you know, ask questions, things like that, and uh, we'll go from there. Or you add comments as well. That's fine as well. Yeah, I just wanted to say I appreciate what you said about anger because what I notice is that there's so many different um, factions that are all pushing anger. You know, anger for for past wrongs, and then other other you know people from other sides getting angry at you know whatever it may be, and it and it's just like I feel like all the anger that's out there is kind of you know, pushes people into these, like, you know, putting up these different walls and things. And so just, I think, starting from a place of trying to, you know, not give in to anger and, and because, you know, it's, it's really clear in Scripture that God doesn't accomplish, and the righteousness of God isn't accomplished through man's anger. So I think I just appreciated that. But being sure about that. And then stuff that's out there, it's real. I mean, isn't that some of that fraction stuff that's out there? And it can make us angry. And uh, um, I don't want to get into the righteous anger anger at all. But what, how we are to respond, though, is to be slow, to listen. Why? Slow to speak. Learn to listen. Because then that keeps it from being angry. Like, oh, that makes sense. It may not change a lot, but it did definitely makes sense. When you say uh, color bold, Brave. Color brave, not colorblind. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, colorblind which says I don't see color. So when you say I don't see color, that won't force you to do anything. I'm not colorblind, so I don't need to do anything. Color brave says I'm going to honor you. I'm going to respect you. So you're more intentional um, to honor another ethnic group or wanting to listen, wanting to learn more um, um, or understand what. Uh, may, what maybe that may anger the person of color, or what would so that different brave being brave enough to ask because I don't want to ask nobody because I don't want to make nobody mad, you know. I, you know, I want to get cussed out. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, so it's being brave enough, having the courage to um, to honor and to recognize, and so that would be. I hope that makes sense because colorblind, you won't do anything. He's like, well, I'm, I'm not. How many people would say, you know, I'm not. I'm not colorblind. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not. But you may have biases that you don't even know. You have biases that you just grew up having, you know, that so color brave um, forces you not to respond to your biases, but to learn. So, so question. Um, so if I'm going to go up and, and be, you know, color brave and, and engage someone, Right now, there's a lot of, oh, well, that's microaggression. You know, you're, if I ask you a question about your ethnic heritage or anything like that, oh, I'm being racist because I asked that. So how would you respond to that? What I would say is, when I, that's why I said um, relationship is key. Um, so a lot of times, it's starting with, hey, I would love to go out to lunch and learn more about you. That, that's a pretty um, safe, they say no. Well, <laughs> you ready to pay? No, uh, <laughs> no. But but that's just like, hey, I would love to learn more. Um, or you know, um, I would love to have lunch. You didn't have to know the details. And as you 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 
you asking us because you want to get to know that person. Not necessarily, you know, what makes them tick or why did things happen in his life or culture, but being genuine, I want to get to know you and who you are. And out of that relationship, now that pastor that called me and uh, asked how you doing, he can ask me any question he wants. I will not get offended because we have a relationship. But don't go, don't approach the relationship just to try to, you know, you know get some answers so you know is to do it because you generally want to have a relationship with someone and out of that you can ask some of those tough questions so I took like African-American history and uh, I think it was senior year and afterwards I felt embarrassed and ashamed of my own skin because of what happened historically how would you advise somebody to not be ashamed of who they are and embrace their identity as a child of God? Well, um, don't ever um, not identify yourself who you are, who God made you to be. Not only for a child of God, but he made you a Caucasian young man, and so that's what you are. Um, um, which how you respond is that if you ask God for the forgiveness, ask repentance for what happened, and you see what happened in history. And obviously, there was a soft spot in your heart that felt like, "Wow, this happened!" And uh, and begin to pray, like, "Lord, um, I, I I pray that you forgive our nation." I ain't say forgive, you know, uh, a certain um, race group or anything like that. So, you know, forgive us our nation for how we respond, how we treat it other people. Lord, forgive us for not standing up as the body of Christ um, to be set example and to model how we respond when this went down. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we can't change what happened then, but we can change what happens now, moving forward. And so I definitely don't want you to uh, uh, be angry at yourself and who you are and things like Because that happens because I, I spoke at Drake and there's young men and women that are Caucasian like, you know, I want to be because of, of history. No. And I'm, you know, um, uh, we will be angry. Things will happen. You will hear things. You will be angry. That's why you have to pray. You have to stop. You have to listen. Yeah, you got to be intentional on in those things so that you know how to respond to that. So I respond to that, man. Um, one, that your heart was soft to even feel the uh, what happened in history, and then just begin, Lord. You know, forgive us as a nation. Forgive us. Help us to uh, know how. Help me to know how moving forward, um, how to model and be an example moving forward. Hope that answers your question. I'm going to run a block and back. But. I know we live by a higher calling with God, but sometimes we lose sight of that, sight of God in this. How do, how do we deal with the wrongs? I mean, for example, all the, all the, all the things that were brought up in history of how different skin colors had reactions and how the government worked, worked against one and, and made the other one rich. I think a lot of times people say, well, that's not me doing that. I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm probably looking at a more physical side of things instead of trusting in God. But um, for example, um, a lot of people are getting a, an attitude towards Latinos because of the border issues and stuff like that, crossing over the borders. And it seems like there's a lot of chaos already in the country besides what's coming across the border, you know. And I guess the I guess the love of money is the root of all evil. Maybe that's what it is. But 
I, I guess I really don't know what I'm asking. I probably shouldn't even be asking this question. But, <laughs> but re reconciliation, I, I see things. I, I go to Minneapolis a lot, and I use use Kaibos up there because they don't want people going because of COVID. And I see racist remarks on the walls. And I'm sitting there going, how can anybody write that up there on that wall and say that, you know, George Floyd wasn't worth anything, you know, and so on. I mean, I, I, I just, I know that's wrong, but I'm not getting angry. It's just, I'm getting more, you don't know what more, to do. more, more desiring of heaven, you know, yeah. but what you're saying is that maybe we should make heaven on earth by being intentional, being intentional. I mean, I like to say when I come into contact with anybody, I try to be respectful and, you know, and so on, but can I give uh, some tangible, like a tangible thing to do when you don't know what to do, like far as the information that we just heard on here? Yes. Yeah. Because understand that we are all sinful people. Yes. I, I am capable, you are capable, all of us are capable in here to do some more crazy stuff. So y'all be seeing stuff on TV like, man, they crazy, What's, what they thinking? Hey, you, you, you crazy too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are capable because of sin, we are capable of things that we didn't think we'll ever do. That's why we need a savior. And because we are acknowledging that, you know, we all been created in his, we all been created in his image, that we are equal, that, you know, we are to honor and to love one another across the line. So when you see laws that was set long ago to put another race in jail for a minor fraction, we need to go down and make sure that's changed. That's that's the ten because why are we doing it? We're not doing it because you know I feel bad. No, we're doing it because we are being created equal. We've been created in God's image to equal, and so that that's not right. That's an injustice, and so we going to make sure that's changed. Does that make sense? It's not out of <clears throat> he should have not done it. No, no, it, it's it's not. So that's how. That's a tangible way, which is I mean that's that's courage. That's color brave when you're willing to go and, and make sure at a state house somewhere those things are changed. Some of those laws have been changed since then, but there's still a lot of laws or different things, even in companies and businesses. Uh, matter of fact, I'm, I'm pursuing my doctorate right now, and I was in a class today. I was like, now I was poking my eyes out because it, it was like um, so long. But one of the articles he made us read was this. Um, they said there's it was like three strategies um, that we ought to look at to um, uh, um, when we surveying people to make sure that there are no common biases in it. And they gave us like three biases typically in a survey when it's done. And two of the biases, one had to do with women, um, that men are greater than women, so there's always a bias in a service with that, and then that white are better than blacks in the service. When even surveys that are out there, they'll have that slant of bias, or, no, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. When someone is doing a survey, the biases that they may have, those two of the three biases they will have when they answer about a leader, so when you look at a leader, and you're doing a survey about that leader, they will have those biases. So understand that there are biases that we have, and then when it comes to color 
And now, even with female, those are some legitimate biases. And, and those biases have been put in by things you see on TV, it's always in your head, in your face, throwing at your commercials, things like that. But there are some biases there. So that's why I say, search my heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit in me. Help me to have the right perspective. Uh, help me if there's any biases that are not God-like or Christ-like. Forgive me, oh God. Amen. Are you brave enough to say, forgive me? So you move forward. Yes, sir. The video talked about policy, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't really expound on that. Could you do a little bit of that? Because, like, we look at our laws mm -hmm. today, and uh, you look at law enforcement and going back to the history of it. Okay, well, the policing and the groupings uh, starting out as, as slave catchers. Well, you can't go back and change what has already started yeah. now, but uh, how do you, uh, I mean, obviously the, the seed of that started in corruption, so how do you make or, or justify or make it right? Now I'm sure there's a lot of people probably, you know. Probably one of the hardest things to do to make that right from policy, um, policy wise. Um, uh, one of the things, um, I'm really praying, praying for and believing that, you know, that would get people of um, believers that would be in roles of leadership where when it comes to policy, that those things could be changed. Um, those policies were set long ago. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat. They gave you both examples of what the Republicans did when they set policies, and it has it when the Democrats was in um, power and the policy they made that really hindered the African American community. Um, from the drug stuff, like you know, um, to, you know, you get life for a second, uh, even for possession. Um, all that has inf uh, infiltrated all the. Uh, our police and different, and that's why you see a lot of that training now, like how to like curb some of those biases and making sure that because they've been set long ago. And that, like I said, sometimes we can have biases, not even know it. We we're not trying to like not like somebody, but just when you grow up or you heard or experienced, you just think that's normal. That's the norm. So what that's created, what happened in the '50s, '60s, has become normal. And because it's normal, you know, even when they make a policy, it has those tone, undertones in it or those biases in it. When they make even, it's like unconscious. They unconsciously putting things in play based on some of those things in the past. So that's why for us being color brave is to, you know, um, to be conscious of some of those things, uh, to be aware of those things so we know how to respond to that when we hear it or see it. Does that make sense? And uh, because um, some of that stuff been put in and... and it's, uh, it's tough to uh, make the people of today or culture of white people of today pay for what happened no, way yeah. back then. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I, you know, um, um, yeah. And that's, that's why we today have to um, model something different because we're quiet. So there's people speaking on your behalf, on our behalf, and uh, and uh, and even there's a blend. And no, you know, we recognize the what happened there. We 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 believe for repentance, and this is what I'm doing currently today. I'm building a relationship across lines. 
that got to be spoken more. That has to be because that's just our society is moving that direction that, man, uh, everybody's getting thrown under the bus. I mean, uh, you know, the cat, everybody. And, uh, and so it's critical that we respond. So what will happen is that we're going to get angry because people say, as the white, you today, your fault, you, you, you know, for something that was set long ago. So that's why we have to acknowledge what happened long ago, ask for forgiveness, and then do what we can today practically to move forward. It's an uphill battle, though. It's an uphill battle. It's not going to be easy. It won't be. It won't. But you know what? It got to start somewhere. Because the millennials, Generation Z, they need to see us set the example and model so they can model it moving forward because they're going to be the one that's going to make the change. We might have lost that opportunity um, to tangibly do that with love, but we can speak it, live it, model it. And, uh, and it may take some time. Um, you, you see, um, went out to this courthouse or the state house and uh, uh, see one, one little policy change. You know, that uh, because the reason why? Because everyone be created in this image. Everyone has the right to be treated equally. Everyone has the right to hear and experience the love of God. And so I'm coming from that perspective. And I would say the same thing if I see a, a Caucasian brother in trouble. Hey, that's a brother, a sister in Christ. I want to love, I want to honor. I'm here today because there have been men and women, different colored. Um, color um, that have stepped in and helped me become the man I am today. There was an Caucasian family in Oklahoma that took a kid from Brooklyn, New York, that know me from Adam, and let me live with them so I could finish high school. The only one to finish high school. So let's not miss that opportunity. Uh, what typically happens? What's like the response when you do like a pastor swap, and how do how do we get that? How do we swap our pastors? <laughs> <laughs> oh, on that note, man, I got I get got a game. I forgot Steve was here. I was around the second part of <laughs> We love you. No, we're, 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 we're going to come out of because of being here today. Him and I won't connect, build a relationship. And I had a relationship, hey, I would love for you to come and, you know, and so forth. I remember another church, same thing. I had a relationship, they asked me to come and, and to preach. And, uh, and it had nothing to do with race stuff either. I can't preach to preach, you know what I'm saying? Just to come and encourage the people. You know, it wasn't about that. It was about, hey, let's encourage the body of Christ. And that's what I did. But it's going to come out. This is the first step. This is the first time seeing me from Adam. And, uh, but out of this relationship, there had been an opportunity. He come much of any time, so I... Well, that's part, part of my DNA, so hey, hey, let's go, you know, and so, and uh, so that's part of our DNA, so we want to honor all cultures at our church, so. One thing that I did notice in the movie, I mean the video, I was thinking about, it seemed a lot like the use of drugs was directly related to lack of hope, especially with the situation, so, um, maybe a war on drugs would be giving hope. Yep. As a, I don't feel better, but yes, war against drugs. Hey, you know what? I think, hey, I grew up in New York, man, and uh, there's, I can say no, there's a sense of no hope. Because, you know, man, and, 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 and the project where I was at, man, drugs, overcrowdedness, violence. There's a sense of no hope, man. It's, we, we did what we got to do to survive. I mean, that was just normal, you know, but, uh, but it was a church that came with a bus and picked us up and took us to Sunday school. 
and uh, it was through that that you know not only not only get my life to Christ, but I got to experience things I've never seen before. I go on little trips and stuff like that, man. I'm honest to tell you the truth. And when I, in Brooklyn, I thought that was the only thing in in, in America. Seriously, I like you know if you don't travel outside of you probably you don't think there's anything else, you know. So to go to Oklahoma and see horses, like what is that? I was dead serious, like you know. It's also a horse was like on cartoons on TV to see a real one. I thought it was a cow. I mean, I'm serious, like you know, you know, you know. We're going trips. We went to like to the Poconos. We went to Maryland. Like I'm like yo, there's other stuff, you know. And um, but you know what? There is a sense of no hope. And uh, and um, and. Uh, and in our inner cities, man, there's just a, a struggle. There's no hope, and some of it is uh, some people have just chose to be there. But there are some legitimate um, policies or things in place that keep people at a disadvantage. And best believe that's the truth. Um, there are things in place to keep people at a disadvantage. And shoot, in some cases, government make money for keep people at a disadvantage. And uh, and so. But it's just understanding that and be doing our part to model and move forward, and uh, that's critical. Just uh, hearing that, what people are talking about and hearing what you said, thank you so much for it. And the, the statement you made earlier about how people are speaking for us, and you talk about policies and who's been making the policies, and you talk about the sense of hopelessness, and it can come in the Christian church as well to say, oh, I wish they would do something about it. I wish the governor would do yeah, something, yeah. or the legislature. I wish them. And we push it off onto somebody else. And a lot of Christians have the idea that we're supposed to be silent and on the sidelines. And that we can just cry about it in our churches and then go home. But at some point, who's going to change the policy? We need Christians to stand up and to say, I'm going to model what Christ would do. And I'm going to do what needs to be done to help my brother and sister in Christ. To help my brother and sister in wherever they are. And, and, not, and, and not care about anything, but to care about everybody. And uh, not worry about the cost to to get it done, but and that's where we are looking at today. That we don't need to wait for the next generation. There's a lot of us in this room that yeah. can do something. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I'm big in um, foster care stuff. Um, really looking into that and how the church can be um, can help. You know, it tells us in James one twenty seven to look after the orphan. We we he says um, pure religion is pure and faultless is to look after the orphan. The modern day orphans are kids that's in foster care. You know, what could we do? Not everybody's called to foster or to adopt, but we can do something. And, uh, and so that's just an example. We sit back, oh, they're just taking care of that. Man, they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Super overwhelmed. I serve on an African American review team right now. Um, you, you, you'd be amazed at this a proportionate of in terms of kids of color and foster care versus the county of oh, I don't got time to get into that one. And uh, but it's but you know, but I'm part of a team just trying to be a voice and bring hope to that situation. I can't do everything, but I'm gonna do that part. You know, some may be you know I'm going to the drug part, some may be but my part is this piece right here. Because it commanded us to look after and so I'm going I know there's a disparity in that and I'm not gonna get caught up in why they there and that parents in a mess up. Not <laughs> we ain't called to do all that. We call to support and speak into. So that's what we do. So 
<clears throat> I went to, I, I grew up, uh, went to an all-white school, and I was fortunate enough to be able to see both sides. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was able to experience was, it, it wasn't so much that uh, a lot of the kids, because at that time you're, you know, I went to Johnson from first grade to, to graduation, and a lot of those kids, it wasn't, you know, they were innocent kids. They didn't know much about blacks. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, it, it, they weren't familiar. It wasn't that they were racist at all. They, were, they weren't familiar. Mm -hmm. And I was able to learn that. And then when I went over into the inner city and mingled with a lot of my African-American black friends, they were the same way. And so they got mixed up with thinking that because whites weren't familiar that they that they were prejudiced mm -hmm. and, and so yeah, yeah. And, 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 there, and then so I kind of wrestled with that uh, in my mind growing up I, I run a program now and uh, I had spent time in prison and I was uh, I was really able to see the different uh, gang riots and the different racial uh, gang riots and uh, a lot of it was a lot of ignorance, yeah. just in the fact that there wasn't familiarity. I mean, you look at the state of Iowa, where it's predominantly white. How can you go to Atlanta, Georgia, you know, in an inner city where it's predominantly black? Mm -hmm. Well, there's different characters there uh, amongst the different races, right? You, you can't change that. Yeah. So, uh, how do you? I guess I kind of wrestle with how do you uh, fix that part of it? I mean, you can't. You can't make a, a white or a Caucasian uh, character change its behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, just like you can't take an African American and, and change its behavior. So, yeah, but you know, we talk about behavior. We talk about um, those you went to school with, and uh, and, and they kind of interact with you because they didn't know any any different. They didn't know right. all those things, and so um, uh, I don't want to change that behavior. <laughs> You know, um, I rather the innocence, you know, they don't know. And then um, what this helped today was maybe some in the room never experienced. So they see information like, oh, that's what people are talking about because you got to educate. At least look for opportunities to educate. And I know in schools now, they take out that piece uh, of, you know, uh, even black history or what happened um, in the history books. Now some of that stuff is taken out of books now. And so they're not really, you know, not everybody's getting information on what happened and things like that. Um, there is truly some, and when you talk about younger, some innocence, like a truly care, like, I mean, they, they, they're resilient in terms of, um, they always they say it's always learned. And so just meaning, you know, we have an opportunity to teach um, the younger generation how to love and how to respond. Um, these are some things that have happened in the past in history um, we're not proud of that as a nation. As a nation, I ain't saying of a, a certain color group. I say as a nation, all right. Um, so that uh, so so this is what we can do to model move forward. Because I went I, again. Yeah, I went when I moved to Oklahoma. I'm in all predominantly white school, and my college was on the down. You know, but I went in like, what up? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. You know, I'm here to learn, I'm here to play basketball, and you know, we all, hey, let's go, you know, and uh, my wife is Caucasian, you know, and, um, and uh, we got um, three of the most beautiful kids in the world, and uh, um, that's who God picked for me, 
and uh, I love her to death, and she loves me, and uh, yeah, we, we get funny looks, but oh well, they, they, my kid's too beautiful to get a crazy look anyway. They can't have a crazy look for long, like, oh, they're too cute. Anyway, um, <laughs> and, um, but, uh, but yeah, that, how you handle that, man, is again, it, it's just continue to teach and continue to model, you know, and uh, there is a legitimate innocence um, that happens, and we want to protect that innocence, you know, even my boys, like, you know, I try to teach them, hey, we got to love each and every one. My daughter, we got to love each and every person when you go, you go to school with. Um, my son, Jace, has this heart for, it doesn't matter what kid, what color, whatever. If that kid is hurting or lonely, he's going to the corner and go hang out with them. <laughs> so we teaching that right now. Because culture is going to give all the different pictures of what, you know, black should be mad. White should be repentant, you know, there's all these point things like that, and uh, the church, no, we ought to be loving. Let's model that. Why we, can, why we cannot be the other, why we can't be the option to love and to, and part of, when I say color brave, that's honoring, that's learning, that's growing together. Let's do life together, let's go. And, uh, and, uh, and so, um, I don't know if I answered your question, Bobby, to the T on that, but, but uh, it's just us teaching from young, and I'm teaching my kids right now. Right now, and uh, hey, it's a funny story. And uh, talk about biases, and I did not get bad. I just, uh, I, I just giggled about it. So my wife and I, um, when Jace was in kindergarten, and uh, and the one his teacher, the kindergarten teacher. Uh, so we had um, parent teacher night or whatever, and uh, and so uh, she told, what did she say? How did she say it? See, uh, a little girl told the teacher that Jace keep talking about shake your booty. <laughs> so he's only, only five, you know, to shake your booty. And so, uh, so the teacher told the little girl, it's, it's okay because sometimes fans listen to certain songs that have that in it. So when I heard that, I had to tell her, in my house, we don't listen to booty songs. So to have a bias to automatically think because my kid is mixed that he listen, he got that word from a booty song. He got the song because we went so in Journey when she one year old said shake your booty and shake your booty. So we're doing that to Journey. So that's what he heard that from. But in her mind, she thought, well, certain songs that you listen to, oh well, let's know. I said, don't. Don't tell a little girl that. I said, and my and I, I didn't tell her. I didn't go into like you know I reprimand her. And I just told her, in my house, in our household, we do not listen to songs that have negative booty um, that would um, be uh, derogatory to a woman. So we don't listen to it in my house. I just want to let you know that. So the next time she says something, like it, it won't it'd be something different than that. But and I and, I, and she's a great teacher because I don't think she like did it to be mean. I think that was just some uh, unconscious bias that we have and not really know we have until you say it come out your mind. I'm like, do I really say that? <laughs> and, uh, but that, that happened. I'm like, but I, I didn't like it, man. I said, hey, in our household, we, we don't do that. You know? And that was the way that I model correcting something that was wrong. I modeled it by, you know, um, with love and with, hey, and, uh, and I thought that was the best way to do it, and uh, no harm, no foul, and he had a great rest of the uh, kindergarten, you know, and he was a little rambunctious at that, but oof. <laughs> yes. um, you mentioned that at New Life Center, you have a core value of racial diversity, so 
what are some of the ways that that plays out and um, I guess what what does your church look like yeah uh, we're a very diverse church um, one um, how we um, value some of the things do one of the things that we do like my staff is mixed I have my um, I have a Latino gal who is um, and a girl and Latino and she's uh, she's the uh, operations director or director of programs for the Dream Center. Um, my children's pastor is Caucasian. I'm African American. My assistant pastor is um, he's also he's Puerto Rican. Uh, uh, and then my board is all Caucasian. I mean, I mean it's, not that I'm a whole boy. I got a mixture. Of, even my mixture of my board. I make sure on my board that I have African American, I'm Caucasian. I have a Latino in there. I have a woman on my board. Uh, so I diversified it. You know, so we're gonna pay attention. Then when we do worship, like yo, hey, worship leader, you see our church, right? We got a mixture of people, different age groups. So when we are praying and playing songs, just keep that in mind. So we some someday we're doing gospel. Some Sunday we're just doing um, what's on the radio. Um, we may throw a hymn in so that you know. So we just celebrating the different cultures in that. So that's some of the things that we have been intentional in doing um, to because uh, we value diversity and so. We incorporate that. Yes, ma'am. Do you know Kay Clarkson? Oh yes. She's a good friend of mine. So. Yes, she's one. Of, yeah, one of our members at our church. So. And Roger Brown. Yes. Yeah. They are gems. They're, they're beautiful. Gems. Yeah. Yes. We go to uh, Kay Clarkson's. Like we go to um, where she's at at her um, um, a living yeah. place, and we uh, go there and sing hands with them and. He didn't. He didn't um, use that term. Um, you know. You know. Because I mean, it's like a thousand videos like this. I like him because he tried to come from a come from a Christian perspective. So how we so let us know what the information is. You know what truly happened, and then this is what we need to do as a church. And so that's what I like about him because coming from that perspective versus from anywhere else. Could you be ticked? <laughs> you leave here. Don't let him come back. No. Um, <laughs> and then, I, and then, yeah, he didn't. He didn't mention as much, but I, I'm sure that some of the content um, you could um, attach it to that. Yes. So, I have a little um, scenario that I messed up on, and maybe you could help me to know how I messed up. But I think maybe from what you've said, maybe I wasn't a good listener. So, um, a friend, a good friend of mine texted me, said, hey, pray for my little girl. She's had some racial things thrown at her at school. As though I'm so sorry, um, that's really too bad. And what was it, you know? And she said, oh, they said to her, white eyes matters. And I said, oh, that's really too bad. I'm sorry. This is in a small town, white community. And I said, well, can I tell you that she doesn't fist at people a lot, which is black eyes matters. You know on the street just at people and she goes that don't matter you know that shouldn't be said at this time so she told someone we had a falling out that was the end of the conversation hmm. so I'm like okay what did I do wrong you know but I guess maybe I just should have been a better listener and not suggested a better you know <laughs> an education 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, what I would say is um, at that moment, because um, like I said, we talked about anger. Because what she might have said, like, you know, that triggers, I'm like, well, she said this, so she had the right to say that. So, and uh, I think that was the response. Um, they response that, you know, um, was sorry to hear that. And uh, it may not, not respond after that. You know, until you're able to have a, you know, you know, do you think, or maybe asking the right question, or, maybe, you know, uh, do you think that they said that because she did this? Versus saying that she did that, and so I could see how she's like, oh, you don't understand. You're just like everybody else. What she needed at that moment, at that moment, because she felt in something, feeling something that she never felt before, and needed somebody to have to have confidence in telling, to have a conversation, and for you to say, are you okay? It's going to be all right. Because when that pastor called me, you know, I'm angry. You know, he he didn't go, you know. Uh, George Floyd deserted because he did A, B, and C. Which, hey, during that time, I, you know, I had, I had, him, never mind. <laughs> I don't leave that alone. <laughs> but he didn't say, you know, he did, he deserved. He said, "How are you doing?" Process. He didn't, you know, didn't talk about what he did and he deserved it or things like that. And that would have been a, a turnoff. <laughs> you know, you want to listen to me then. You know, and I'm not into what he did and why. I, no, something happened. It was an unjust move. You know, and it hurts. Mm -hmm. Thank you that you. So that. So and maybe at this point, the Lord, you know, help me for reconciliation on this one. If that, if that, or restore that relationship if it's not um, current right now. And uh, and ask God, you know, how can I approach and have a conversation? Because probably deep in your heart, that's not who you are. You know, and. Uh, and so that's why it's always important for us to listen first, um, not speak, just, just to be in there, not to give our opinion, but just to listen. And I think God gives us the words what to say in a moment, an instance, but it's just been. So I, I really encourage you, and I, I'm going to be praying that, man, that that relationship be restored because uh, she needs you and you need her. And, uh, and so, um, so I'll definitely be praying for that. I am not an expert, by the way, y'all. So, <laughs> is I am not, um, you know, um, I'm really considering for my doctorate, you know, what area a topic to do my dissertation on. And uh, racial reconciliation is one of the areas, one of them. And so they're helping me to navigate through it because I've been out of school for five years. And so it is really hard to get back into the academia. And I ain't really academia like that anyway. <laughs> you know, you know, and, uh, and so... Uh, I'm really praying about this area and um, um, to respond to it from a biblical standpoint. But I want to just get, I want to give information. I want to be able to respond and that we do something. Uh, it's information used to help us to mobilize and move forward. Not to just to explore, to analyze, but actually to do. And, uh, and that's what we need today. We need, we need love matters. And our world, our community needs to experience God's love, even confrontation. Yo, here's the deal. There will, we, we will collide. The truth of God's word and the world's um, culture is going to collide. It's already collided. How are we going to respond when we collide? We got to respond in love. Not with your bias. I don't know what else to tell you. We gotta spread love, and so I'm. I'm, I'm it's woo. <laughs>
that there is about to collide. And it's already, you know, we've experienced some of that in small ways. And, uh, and, uh, and so how to respond will be critical. And we'll respond in love because love matters. Can you give us the example that you had in your life with what you said from New York to Oklahoma? And you say you kind of got foster cared or, or, or adopted, or was that you? It was me. It was, it was um, guardianship. So guardianship. Um, there was the only thing my mom did was she signed guardianship to allow uh, Jerry and Carol to make the decisions for me while I'm in Oklahoma. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't part of like the child welfare system or anything like that. It was just one of those church relationships. Was a ch my church in New York had a relationship with a church in Oklahoma. And within that church, there was a family that wanted to answer the call to have kids live with them. And so with the support of that church in Oklahoma and the family, me and some other boys, uh, so it was more of a guardianship. Okay, were you, you say you were the only one in your family. How many did you have in your I have four, I have four brothers, I have four of us, three, three brothers. So I'm the only one graduated from high school. The only one in my family graduated from college. Okay. Sounds like you first generation. Yeah. Awesome. And my kids don't follow up. But you know what? It just, you know, when I said sense of no hope, man, I mean, we just did what we did in New York. If I was still in New York, I mean, there's a good chance of being part of a statistic. I would have probably not finished high school. Maybe I would have. I don't know. You know, I just thank God for giving me the opportunity. But you know what? Every time I work with young people here in the inner city, I remember where I once was. So everyone has the opportunity. So I want to make sure they have an opportunity to graduate and fall. Where's your, where's your brothers at today? Uh, they still in here. One of them lives here in, in Des Moines and two in New York still. Okay. I got a host of nieces and nephews. That's one of my um, reasons why I'm pursuing my doctorate. Because um, my nieces and nephews have following suit. They're all dropping out of high school as well. And if I can um, be an example, you know, uh, get my doctorate in, uh, and I'm not like this smart dude, like a brain that I am not. I have to really, really, really work hard um, for the research and all those things. I want them to say that they can do it too. Even if the first step is to finish high school, um, they can do it too. Because, you know, their uncle did it. You know, and uh, so that's a personal bias or by a personal goal of taking the doctorate is so they can see it as well. I might be getting personal, but you your, your mother okay. and father. Wow. They both deceased. They're both my dad deceased. died when I was six years old, so didn't know him as well. And my mom died when I was uh, 30, 30 years old, so, so almost 15 years ago. What do you get in your doctorate in? Uh, it is a doctorate of education and organizational leadership. I want to help um, nonprofit, faith-based organizations specifically in churches be healthy because every community is a healthy expression of God's love. But there's a church organization that's hurting. Uh, I want to be able to come alongside to help them um, a lot of times it's just strategic planning. It may be just, so I want to be able to be a part of that. And then, again, foster care is a big thing um, love to be a part of and um, making change in our state in that area. And uh, uh, foster care, everyone, uh, two, uh, you know, there are some challenges in the African-American community. And uh, it breaks my heart that we lead in abortion, we lead in incarceration, we lead in health issues, we lead in achievement gap, fatherlessness. It tears me up. I mean, I, I and like, Lord, what, what can we do to, uh, and, and it's more than just policies, things like that. It, it's, it's a heart issue as well. And so I want, I want to see our community, our community experience 
um, growth, um, graduation, do well, um, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And I think plays a big role in that. Because uh, God, God and church has been a big role of the African-American community since long ago. Even all those, all those things you see on there, um, um, God was a big part of getting them through, uh, folks getting through those, those times. They found refuge and strength in God in those times. And uh, so, but um, we just lead in a lot of categories. It hurts my heart. And uh, some of it's from policy, things like that that's been made. And some of it's just straight heart issue stuff. And uh, I'm believing that God's going to heal and restore. And, uh, and uh, that's a big area. And um, I have like four things and they're going to help me which one to pick one dissertation. Which I ain't going to do that until two years from now. But they're making you pick your topic now. Because all the work you do now leads up to the dissertation. So I'm like, good, because I'm lost already in the first week. Um, <laughs> I would suggest, like, um, if you have four topics you can't decide, just have it randomly chosen, you know, God chooses where the dive goes. Choose your uh, dissertation. Yeah, you're right. I'm praying and processing, so it'll, be, it'll, it'll come. But just passionate about so many things. What they said was get your, um, said that the dissertation gets you a degree, the degree helps you change the world. 